The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. My guest today is Nathan Dardity, who is many things. His, his current gig, and one I think he is absolutely crushing, is a host of First Up, which is an RNZ show that you might not have heard of or, or have heard. It runs from 5 till 6 a.m. weekdays, which is a time some people like to sleep. Uh, I'm up and I, I hear it most days for some proportion of it. And I've, I've liked this first up since its, its inception. Uh, Indra Stewart um, was, the, was the debut host. But um, I think Nathan over the past year or so has really brought a different sensibility to it and actually to RNZ as a whole. He's, we'll, we'll, we talk a lot about his history as a broadcaster, but what he brings to first up is a really – kind of laid back and slightly you know digressive and fun sensibility and he does do sort of statement interviews and you know he speaks to the finance minister and uh, the deputy leader of the opposition he covers Ukraine and it, it's you know it's there what you need but it's also there's just more and there's it's a, it's a it's a feeling that you don't necessarily get from the sort of yeah, you know, the, the the daytime run of RNZ, and I think the the station benefits from it. And most of what we talk about today isn't actually about first up; it's really about his path to that show. I first became aware of Nathan watching Ice TV as a teenager, a three hour long show on Saturday afternoons that uh, just acres of space to fill, not a huge amount of resource like a classic New Zealand media setup, and it certainly for me felt like it was the beginnings of how a, a kind of an alternative youth culture was expressed on television in this country and along with Max TV which he was also a part of which was a an Auckland music independent music TV channel it it just it, it allowed people to express themselves and and try different things and where the dominant tone of New Zealand Broadcasting was quite stiff and quite, you know, desperate to appear the same way as the, the sort of, you know, BBC or whatever Anglophile kind of culture had created a lot of our work to that point. There was just something different and our own about Ice TV. Uh, he went on to have have a, a key role with with Brotown, and we we touch on that, and and also talk about 
you know, his year spent in a, in a kind of wilderness. He talks about being on on Pluto and drifting further away from the sun during during his period on on live sport, and you know, speaks very candidly and I think quite affectingly about the sort of trials and tribulations of a broadcasting lifer and the things that you have to accept and. I don't know. What do you have to accept them? I don't think that, that this industry that necessarily looks after its people all that well at times. And um, he speaks very candidly about that. Uh, but ultimately, he's landed in the right place. And and I think what he describes about the sort of the chemistry of the people who make first up and in those weird hours, uh, both the audience, uh, the producers and staff and so on, there's something really quite compelling about it. And I think a lesson in how you make good media. So if you listen to this pod, then then hopefully you're, you're interested in that and you'll get something out of it. So this is Nathan Radadi, host of First Up on the Fold. Kia ora, Nathan, and welcome to the Fold. Kia ora, thank you very much. It's fancy. I like your fancy offices. Well, this, uh, this is the first time I've recorded the Fold in here. So, oh, really? Um, yeah, Woo. yeah, it's very new. Okay, good. Um, I, I wanted to ask, because... <laughs> You you are a real broadcasting lifer, and that you were you were doing radio while still in high school. Yeah, do you want to just tell, tell me tell me about that? What attracted you to it, and and how you sort of managed? Because I think it was like a midnight till six AM shift, which yeah. doesn't feel super conducive to getting your studies done. Well, strangely, here we are in April twenty twenty two, and there's a cyclone on the way to hit the North Island. And when I was in sixth form at school, year 12, um, we used to do these Wednesday afternoon things called sixth form transition. And you'd go out to different things and we were doing a media week. And I ended up at the radio station that day and a mate of mine went with the Herald Tribune, which was the local paper. And that was huge news in Hawke's Bay because, you know, the, the levees busting and all sorts of that. And then I'm up at the radio station 93 FM it was called and that was the station that I remember it coming on when I was at Intermediate and it was so exciting like we are going to have FM radio <laughs> and then songs that you hadn't heard before and then wow you know this is cool and and there was something that drew me to it I liked it and I remember that there used to be a show on AM and this guy Wayne Mowat and it was like the all-nighter of New Zealand and there would be people from Nelson talking and or you know messages from people from Nelson people from Whangarei people from you know Darfield places I hadn't really heard of or even contemplated even existed in Hawke's Bay because you've got that big line of the ranges around you to, to hem you in. And it felt to me like what a cool connection with everything out there. So I'm up at the radio station at the time and I remember just looking around and thought to myself, this is kind of fun. And there was a, a copywriter there who walked past us and there was a chair and he sort of walked past and went, excuse me, and stood on the seat of it and pushed the back down with his foot and kept walking. And I thought, that's pretty cool, you know, to do that. That is incredibly you know, cool. You know, Still. He, he was. He was a cool guy. <laughs> like, that guy's a cool And then we met the, the general manager and he was talking to us about radio and stuff. And, and I looked across the table and I thought, that old guy knows every song on the top 20. And I think my mum wouldn't know any of them. And there was something that I was really drawn to it and I just liked the buttons. I liked the lights. I um, was really drawn to it that way. And then the next year I went away to uh, on a rotary exchange to Canada and one of the um, people in the rotary club that I was with owned a radio station. So they had me in as a guest a couple of times and then I went in and uh, put my headphones on and I was like, I was just hooked. I thought it was great. The little red light went on. And I was like, this is really fun. Like, I'm like Wayne Mowat now. You know, I'm, I'm talking to people and there's a whole lot of strangers who I don't know. And, you know, I'm a typical nervous kid. And you know, they got me something to say and they thought my accent was funny. And so then when I got back, I... Um, I tried to get, because I'd taken up psychology when I was over there, and I was really fascinated by the human mind and also sociology, like how do we work as bunches of people? Um, 
And, you know, these were high school subjects that I took because I couldn't take them in New Zealand. Like, you know, then we had, what, geo, history, maths. (laughs) <laughs> maths with stats, you know, something like yeah. that. And I got there at my prospectus at at, uh, at Churchill and I looked down and I'm like, what is sociology? I'm going to do that. What is anthropology? Okay, just anything with anology and I got into those. And so I think I became fascinated with just how people work and came back. I wanted to go to Victoria. They said, you can't use these credits. So I went back to high school. And then while I was there, I went up in the middle of the year to see a friend of mine who I'd been in the debating team with because uh, I wanted to learn how to debate early on because my sister was really good at arguing. So I thought, right, I'm going to beat her in one of these, and I, <laughs> I never have. And uh, there was a guy that worked there, who, and I went up after school, and I went to see him. And as luck would have it, the boss came out and said to me, okay, come in. And I went, okay, and sat in his room, and he said, like, do you do – you, so you want a job then, do you? And I went – yeah. And he went, okay. So we had a little chat and he's talking about things I could do. And that was being the carting boy, you know, t- taking the pre recorded ads and putting them on a little cart. And then he said to me, okay, well, cheers, Brad. Um, that'll be great. And I said, <laughs> oh, it's Nathan. And he goes, oh, I thought it was Brad. Okay, cool. There you go. And there's a guy who looked like me at school called Brad who'd been going up with his CV all the time to. Um, poor, poor Brad's out there and you've stolen his whole Brad's career. Brad's a dentist. Brad did fine. Brad's probably got three, <laughs> three Teslas, thank you very much. So, <laughs> <laughs> But then I ended up um, being the carting kid and that was my job as I'd bike out after school. And so doing that, um, I learned how to use new toys because I'd always been one of those ones at home that was fascinated by, like, you know, why does the Dolby NR button exist? Why, why does this high-speed dub? And, you know, when we got VHS machines, I was like, wait, I can plug this into the stereo and I can put music on things, you know. And I, that was my own little lab there in Frimley and Hastings is what I did. So that felt to me like a cool thing. Like, I honestly felt like I was in the Starship Enterprise. It was these buttons and records and sliders and what have you. And then... Uh, it was about halfway through the year and one of our staff faxed our playlist to his mate at the opposition as a bit of a show off. So he got fired. The replacements were away and the boss comes over and goes, hey, Nathan, you know how to use the desk, right? I said, yeah. And he went, look, can we pay you to do a midnight till dawn? And I was like, oh. So I rang home and my mum and dad were like, oh, I suppose so. So I biked home and then I biked back in at like 11.30 at night in my uniform. And then I went and I did the midnight till six in the morning show. And all they wanted me to do was read the weather at the top and then just push the buttons and just be there in the morning to do like two hours for the breakfast host. And so I, I did the my weather and then I started out and I still remember it. It was Cart 77 and it was Taylor Dane. And I went, boom, and I hit play and I zoomed back in my chair and I thought, this is it. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to it's me. It's the big time. This is it. This is this was my dream. These were all my dreams coming true. And if I never got to do it again, I was going to remember this. But the phones start going crazy and I'm like, they love me. And then I realised I was playing it in queue. So, <laughs> <laughs> so about the first minute and a half is that and the hotline goes and it's the boss going, look, just, you know, pay attention. And the end, you know, I'm pushing the buttons and I'm playing the music and this is before automation. So, you know, there was always something to do. It's like driving a manual car. And then I got through till six in the morning and our replacement breakfast host who was filling in at the time was Jehovah's Witness and he said to me hey I can't read birthday calls because they're a pagan ceremony can you read them and I thought oh not when people are listening <laughs> and, but one of my things at school had been I'd been we had about five class clowns it was amazing so it was such a great thing to have and I'd been doing theatre sports and what have you and uh, I'd got into doing voices and stuff and he said well just do them on one of the voices so we created this character who was a uh, 
um, sort of split of my English teacher at the time, and he just was like this lovable nerd who'd come up from Masterton and worked at the station, so I read it out in a character voice. And then they said to me, hey, can you do another Madonna? And then the next day the guy comes in and he's written some jokes for me to do. And then next thing, Nigel Neville was his name, Nigel Neville, became this like living cartoon character. And they said to me, why don't you just do Madonna's? Do you want to do it full time? So I went, okay. So I had to figure out a way to make it work. So this is heading towards exams time now at school. And I had a teacher at school, Greg Cook, who'd done student radio. And he got it and he said to me, it's awesome, isn't it? I said, it really is. So I could come to school in the morning until lunchtime. He'd talk me through with my teachers what was going to be happening that afternoon. And then I would bike home and I'd go to sleep. And then my dad would wake me up at like 11 o'clock at night by just pulling the duvet off and going, oh, here we go. And then I'd <laughs> bike into town and do my Dawns. And that's really the story of where it came from was the ability to do funny voices in right place, right time. That's incredible. And and obviously well you're you're back on that that first first love medium now, which we'll we'll get yeah. to later on. But I wanted to spend some time talking about Ice TV, which, you know, I would have been in my mid teens when right. it when it started. Uh I moved over from from the UK and I remember it as feeling like it was like quite a revolutionary show at the at the time. Like I was seeing a kind of youth culture from Aotearoa mm. that had its own kind of sensibility. It almost felt, felt like, you know, looking back, and I can't tell to what extent I've sort of shaped this in my memory, but the seeds of some of the weird comedy that, that grew out of uh, the, the sort of 2000s in yeah. New Zealand, and it had music and it was... You know, like the, the, you know, had you and Petra and uh, John Bridges, these very kind of like fresh personalities that seemed generationally different to what had gone before. And, and it was a, this very successful show that ran for a long time. You know, t- tell me about what Ice TV was for those who haven't had the pleasure of watching it and, and, and why it sort of seemed to hit, do you think? Why is hard? Because, um, you know, like some things you can think out, the greatest thought out, the greatest researched out thing in the world, and you chuck it out there and it does nothing. And then other things, someone, you know, going viral. Basically, this was the old days of going viral. Mm. So it was a show that was on for three hours on a Saturday afternoon, and the idea was is that TV3 at the time had bought the rights to the one-day cricket for the summer. So they needed something to fill in during the winter months. So they had 30 weeks spare. So they came to uh, a couple of a couple of producers um, and they Stephen J. Campbell being one of them, um, Richard Driver being another, and Jude Anaru. So Jude Anaru had come from BFM. Mm. She'd been a, a PD there. And so to me, she really got cool, you know, and she, she understood it and that as well. And they said to Jude, right, we're going to give you this show to do, so give us a youth show and you've got to fill in three hours, which when you think about it a week is a ridiculous amount of so It's a phenomenal length of time to yeah. be creating. Yeah. And, and, and I hate to be a little brack and morrow, but, but that was very slow editing that you couldn't just go click, click, click and do things, which actually is weird. I, I was, at the time I was a copywriter uh, and, doing a, and doing some radio as well at a place called Studio Time. And I remember that just before that, they'd bought in the first time we'd ever seen digital audio equipment. So of course it comes in and we were used to cutting on a big eight track. And I remember we were watching the display and we we're like, wow, we could we could do like two ads a day on this, you know? And, and that was just like, oh, do you think we could? Do you reckon three? Oh, geez, that'd be pushing it. Then, of course, later on, you're yeah, pumping out 75 ads for some Ford dealer, you know, because they, <laughs> they want these different ones. But so Ice TV was um, 
was was that. Number one, it was to fill in those three hours, really, and then fill it in with pop culture. But at the same time, they were making melody rules. So they were going into that dive of TV3 going, right, we wa- we're going to get this New Zealand on-air money, we're going to make New Zealand productions, and we're going to have a go go at these things. And that was Jeff Stephen that headed that up. And actually, when you think about it, she actually took a massive amount of bravery. Because New Zealand leading up to that, particularly in the 80s and stuff, had a real cultural cringe about itself. Seriously. You know, and if things were made in New Zealand, oh, it's probably not very good. Is that one of our movies? Oh, imagine that. Oh, imagine our music. Oh. You know, and it was only when people overseas recognised them that they were, you know, taken until, like, oh, Crowded House. Oh, it's Crowded House. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Split Ends seemed to be the only ones that, that everyone loved, you know, them and Herbs. But there wasn't even, like, it felt like it was a, an alternative culture in a way that yeah. hadn't particularly, certainly that I was aware as, as a teenager at the time, Expressed on television, like yeah. that, like that was you know there was obviously alternative cultures on on BFM and I think Max TV might have been around at yeah. the same well, time. I, I, was, that, I was at Max, yeah, right. I mean, yeah. and that was extraordinary. Suddenly, in my mind, like that, that, well, that, that was actually, electric. That probably shaped more for me creatively than Ice TV did. But at the time, I had had two years doing a show. So we did a show on Wednesday night called Box Dog. And, and Box Dog was basically a whole bunch of guys from advertising agencies. And I'd been doing some work at Mojo. And you're writing ads all week about tyres and clothes and that. And then Luke Living Nol- the dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Luke Nola was set loose on the um, colour copier at Colenso and then just created these incredible characters. Now, there, there is still box dog stuff on Facebook and stuff like that as well. And that was my first brush with celebrity, I would say, because I remember we were a Wednesday night, very small cult show. Uh, and then I remember one night coming out, uh, there'd been some roadworks out in front of my house and these guys, I you know, waved and I was like, hi. And I thought, was that? And I come back and they'd painted box dog and tar right outside my house. And I was like, wow, this is weird. And the whole point of box dog, like we had, you know, the author Chad Taylor. So, so Chad as a novelist and Chad's great. Chad's a really good gauge of what is funny. And it's like, uh, it's like Graham Chapman's role in, in Monty Python. Like they always said, if Graham laughed, yep, it's funny. So our show was we'd do the show and it was a single locked off camera and it was very, very low-fi and everyone else sat out in the back room and you did your sketches. So I played the host role, which was like straight man to all the gags. And if you heard Chad in the background going, <laughs> then you knew it was a good one. You know, and that was that was victory. Like, yes, made Chad laugh. So, but while I was there, um, there were two guys that were very key to my philosophy of thinking. There was um, Steve Susie and Steve Ason, who were uh, ad guys that now are directors and creatives extraordinaire. And they were talking to me about why New Zealand had that cringe, and they said because we have really low budgets, but we want to make it look like we've got a big budget. And that never, ever works. So what you should do is own up to low budget. So this whole thing, we're owning up to low budget. And every now and then the microphone would crap out. So we had this blue lighting gel that we used to just put in front of the camera and just bring it up as if the studio was slowly filling with water. <laughs> you know, and then even people coming in and just doing fake fish stuff and blowing bubbles in the end. Because it, it happened quite, quite regularly just because the equipment was really cheap. And that's where I learned about, you know, you could have a graphics department or you just have a piece of cardboard that you bring up from the bottom of the screen with a, with a pen and then back down. So when I got to Ice TV, I, I looked around. So John was a TV professional who I'd seen before and I'd seen him as a stand-up comedian and I was a huge fan of his. 
I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. I'm working with John. I didn't really know Petra. Petra had come from Christchurch, also from doing music she TV. She was Cry as well. TV down there, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's quite striking when you walk in at that age to meet someone so confident and so sure of who they are. And, and, um, I wasn't at all at that stage because I guess I'd got to Auckland and I'd been the funny guy at school and stuff. Then you get to Auckland and there's a thousand of them, you know, and it's like, okay, well, good luck being, standing out from this lot if you if you think you're just going to be funnier, you know, because that's tough. So when we started doing stuff at ICE, I remember the very first shot of the show and it required bravery from Jude. So Jude was our producer, right? I think Jude coming from BFM, she understood counterculture uh, far more intrinsically than I did. And, and the others did. And so our opening shot of the show was I said, hey, let's have a camera follow me into the studio. And they didn't even give us a proper studio. So we were just in our office and we actually didn't have a makeup room. Like Petra did our makeup and we did it in, in the toilets. <laughs> and there was a great day where John ended up accidentally with my makeup and I accidentally ended up with his. And we're sitting there doing camera checks and there's this giggling going on in our ears. <laughs> <laughs> And so we gave John a nickname for a while and, and it was like he was this uh, character, hi, I'm strangely brown, because that was the thing. Like, John, are you are you wearing, what's what's up with Nate's lights and the lighting director's coming in and they're like, oh, oh, no, hang on. No, he's got, he's got. so I did whiteface, so I'd like to apologise for that. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, and it was that. And we had these lights that were really, really low. But at the time you had people from, so we didn't really have our own crew. We had the Nightline crew. And they were the the new show, which at the time for TV3 fancied itself as being slightly different. So you had, had a real specific kind of feel that was quite yeah. a, aside from the way that news had been presented anywhere. Yes, yes, it did. Yeah. And and so we had them coming in and we had these two directors. So they'd go week on, week off with doing us. And I think for them, what was nice was you spend a week doing death, taxes, murder, and then you get a week off to go and do that that weird show that those kids are doing. And this is kind of fun. And what was neat was as they happened, they started to get more brave about how to do things. And they started to come with ideas. And the camera crews were like, oh, this is kind of fun. Because news camera people now all of a sudden came out and they were shooting stories uh, with us. And we, we had one rule, um, no Dutch tilts, because there was this, this always this thing, whenever there's youth youth culture, they like to tip that camera on that tilt, on that angle. Like, yeah, look at this. This is crazy. <laughs> and Jude was like, no. And I'm so pleased she did that. Like, no, that stops. And we're not having these. And so uh, it just kind of developed that way. But it was the bravery of Jude to say, okay, you've got this time to fill, just fill it. Off you go. And she would sit there at the back and look really nervous at us. But the opening shot was you come in and I said, follow me in and then I'll go in and I'll sit on the couch and we'll talk. And the camera people just froze and the director's like, no. It's like, why? Well, you'll see the cables and you'll see all the lighting and stuff. But that was part of the show's charm. and. That sort of aesthetic where you sort of show the working sort yeah. of became a signature of a whole bunch of shows, yeah. uh, you know, from... Which is weird to think at the time, but, yeah, you're right, it did, because it was never... It was it was seen as bad craft. But as, as I've been explaining to you, I love the buttons, I love the lights, I love all that, and I'm like, why wouldn't people want to see how the sausage is made, you know? And, and that's what defined it as, as different. It developed its own charm because we were allowed to fail, and we had sketches that worked and then we had ones that didn't work. And it's been interesting talking with Petra and John recently 
I, like I, I know that I'm quite definite about what I thought was was good, and I think from theatre sports, I learnt that you've got to have a finish to go to. And as long as you know where you're all going to end up at, if someone shoots off on a tangent or does those things, as long as we know where we're going, there's no need to panic about what's happening. Because I still see presenter groups or hear presenter groups on air and they don't know where someone's taking a tangent and the other two will shut down because they're not sure. Whereas if you know where you're going, you just ad lib it and you get there and it's great and you enjoy the journey along the way. But you've got to have supreme amount of trust in who you are with and even better, you've got to have bosses that are prepared for three or four of those to fall flat on their face and then for some gold to happen. So that was great with Jude. But I remember that first year, I, I found it really hard. I felt the responsibility of the crew. I didn't want to ruin their work because I knew that they put a lot of love and effort into what they're doing. And, and a lot of it is just pressure you put on yourself because you're inexperienced. But Jude used to stand around behind the main camera and she had her eyes, she had her arms folded and she'd just glare at me like that. <laughs> I, and it, it wasn't until I got to the end of the year I said, can you please stop doing that? <laughs> she goes, oh, sorry. I just, you know, I'm just, just, just a ball attention. Yeah. So, so and we did things like we went out and filmed on video which at the time people hadn't done and we, we shot some stuff and the editors were like, you can't use this, this isn't a TV camera. And we were like, yeah, yeah it is. And that was just doing Vox Pops and stuff. And so a lot of it was ideas that we had seen. Like I had seen um, when I was living in Canada, I watched Much Music, which was their MTV. And there was a guy, Terry David Mulligan, who had a... I just thought a style where I just thought, oh, he seems like him. So I thought if I ever wanted to be on air, I'd want to be like TDM. And then I, you know, Robert Rakiti was another just absolute showstopper. And when I first moved to Auckland to work in radio, I got to work with him. And that was like, I don't know. It was like, he was a megastar. Oh, it was. Time. It was like working with Michael Jordan. You like, this is right. And they said, oh, you're going you're gonna to teach him how to write skits. I'm like, no, I'm not. He's Robert Rakiti. Are you crazy? <laughs> but he, um, he was really good at being famous which is, I, is, I think is a really underrated thing. Like he knew how to deal with profile. And I remember we were out, we were out somewhere doing something and he, we were just sitting there having lunch and there was a mum struggling with a, um, trying to get her trolley um, pushed chair through the door and Rob went, oh, and he got up and opened the door and just helped her out and stuff. And I remember thinking, oh, that's really cool. You know, I hadn't thought of it because I'd, I'd, I'd wondered how, if I was ever like Rob, how I would handle things, you know. Um, so it's it's been a whole bunch of influences that came in, but it was really a massive team effort of people going, hey, let's just do this. But I know that Petra and John said that apparently I vetoed about 85% of the ideas um, because my thing was, but what's the ending? Like, where do we go? <laughs> so, which I think might have been, um, I know I read a thing once where one of the bosses says I was a bit creatively scary to work with. And I don't know if that means that I had lots of ideas or if I crushed a lot of ideas, but I hope it wasn't crushing too many. An idea that came after us, TV was Brotown, which is probably the second big kind of yeah. cultural event um, of your career to that point and and a real landmark show that um, you know set in Morningside which is where we yeah 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 exactly we are right now on purpose by the way too for Oscar's mum's house value but yes <laughs> <laughs> um, and and you had I think twelve characters that you you voiced in it. and that you know like as a as a I mean it's a cartoon but it's still it, it was a representation of Marty and particularly Pacifica life on screens ran yeah. for a long time a huge hit. Which probably feels like we don't remember the scale of it as as to, to the extent that it um, that it should be in a way. 
T- tell me about that creative partnership and and what that show meant to you and and well, the audience. So look, I can't claim any of the creative start of that at all. That that's Oscar and that's the Naked Samoans and that was very much theirs. I um you know the the arranged marriage of broadcasting. Right. So I'm at, I'm at TV3 after. So I left Ice TV with a year to go. Um, I had a, a space in my head where I wasn't right for the show. I was, just wasn't fit for the show anymore. I, it just wasn't right. We were doing, John and I were doing a breakfast show on Channel Z, and that was, I'd pretty much transferred, I think, my creative love to that because that was, again, you could do a, a lot of, you know, very good creative ideas and push them. And Channel Z was kind of similar to Ice TV in that it wasn't one of the big cash cows. So you could probably experiment a little more without the sales department getting. It, it you know. feels like in, in New Zealand, some of the best stuff we've ever done and the, the, the best training grounds are when the bosses aren't really watching yeah. and there's just acres of time and enough resource to get it done but not so much that you're sort of drowning in it. Yeah, yeah, because you've got to be brave and, and you need to have brave bosses. But I think their bravery comes from how leaned on are they by a sales department? You know, like how vital is it for the advertiser that we told them we were going to get hit these metrics, why aren't we hitting them in that? So I get put onto um, TV3 Rugby with Oscar Kitely and we just – hit it off straight away like when I got married Oscar walked my wife down the aisle um which was which was pretty cool and we've we've done holidays around the world together and that was quite fun like you know we went to Amsterdam and rented a houseboat for a week and wandered around and kept bumping into people that we knew we went out in LA one night just to watch some rugby next minute as you do in LA next minute we're at the Chateau Marmont because uh, one of the hobbits saw us from Lord of the Rings and he went hey the rugby guys when you come out and that, so we end up wearing shorts and and I had my just my, my slides on and so of course they assumed those guys must be important and we're inside <laughs> the velvet rope and people go to the Chateau Marmont and they stand around and they just stare at celebrities and it's like we're Oh, we're in, we're in with the celebrities. And then um, because it was uh, Salah Baker was there who played Sauron and he knew us as well. So next thing, there's the three of us just driving around Beverly Hills in this Jeep, you know, like doing those. So fun things happened around Oscar. Um, but Brotown, he, he knew that part of my real uh, other thing that I'd love to do was to be a cartoon character. So Oss would hit me up every now and then for these like, hey, Hey man, yeah, can you do a German? Oh, I can give it a go. Okay, cool. Can you be in in like 40 minutes? So I'd, <laughs> I'd get in to go and do it and to to be around them because um, when you watch a machine in action like they are, that's it's beautiful to see, like a creative group that are so in tune with each other and something that might be a just a passing comment that Mario makes becomes, you know, a, a part of the part of the show and a part of the sketch. So really, I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm one of those little birds on the back of a rhino, you know. I, I got to be there, but I also got to live a dream doing it and, and get to be involved. And it was pretty cool and, like, to have that up on the shelf um, is, is quite a nice little souvenir to have. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I didn't create any of that. I, I got to be a part of it, though, and it was a nice thing to, to get to be a part of it. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. 
So from there, you return to, to radio in, in, in various guises. And yeah. I, I want to spend some time talking about First Up, uh, which which we'll get to in a second. But yeah. you were you were there and you just before we got on air, you talked about your first Zoom call. Yeah. <laughs> When so, you when you're at uh, NZME and, yeah. and working at Radio Sport, tell us about that if you don't mind. So, so my other thing is is that I've always loved sport. I've loved the community of it. I, I love rugby because that's my dad, and that was friends in my life that I wouldn't have been friends with. You know, you become mates with, uh, which are good. And I ended up actually when I first moved out to Auckland. I did some coaching out at St. Kennigan's for with a little team. And that was great. And that was the team of none of these kids are going to be all blacks, you know. <laughs> but the best bit was was watching, and this sounds so cheesy, but it's true. At the start of the year, there were kids that weren't friends. And right at the end of the year, we played our last game against against one of the schools. And they turned around, oh, do you want to ride? You know, and they're giving each other. And they were friends. And it was nice because I explained to them. Because during that year, one of, one of my good friends uh, died of a, a brain aneurysm. And, and so I was away for about two or three weeks. And he was he was the captain of my rugby team at school. And I spoke about how, hey, when I was 14, when I was your age, you know, we had this and this is great. And I got to know about these people and you guys will be the same and you'll rely on each other because you wouldn't have seen each other at school. So it was nice seeing that. So I always loved sports. So my little... Um, I guess the way I worked and I thought about where my career might be after Channel Z was I made sure I was the sports reader and I thought, right, I'm going to position myself as someone who could possibly do this. And I did a thing where I I figured that all sports interviews are really boring and um, so I would read the sports news every day in the news, but I just had the same audio clip and it was Stephen Fleming. (laughs) So no matter what sport it was, be it male, female, basketball, cricket, soccer, whatever, it was always a Stephen Fleming clip of like, yeah, well... uh, you know, both sides uh, try the best and uh, certainly we'll try for next week. And even I found it funny. I just delighted in the fact when it was out of context, even, you know, it just doesn't work. I just, I just love that, like putting it in. And then at TV3, uh, two of the heads of department there said, hey, why don't you, do you want to come and do sport with us? So I did that. So I kind of positioned myself into sport. We we did a, a station uh, combined with the TAB uh, at MediaWorks when I was there. And I was actually there for seven years. But That's right. the problem was it felt like you were in Pluto, like you were a little AM station that they really didn't care too much about. And it was quite a weird time for my career because I felt myself getting further and further and further away from the sun. you know. And if you're near the sun in your broadcasting career, all of a sudden one job begets another, begets another, begets another. But if you get further and further away, you're done. Like you are really done. And so I'd I'd gone away. That station shut down. I produced a TV show for a year, which I'm no good at. Like I, I'm no good at tidying up the details. I, I'm just not. I can come up with things. Uh, if someone puts up the framing, I can do the jib really awesome, but I'm terrible at decorating, if that's, if that's a good, good way that to sort of put it. Yeah. And um, then luckily one of the guys that I was working with there was the producer at Radio Sport and a position came up on the breakfast show and they gave me a shot and I think that was hard for people to accept that were like hang on what's this buddy guy doing because it's the cathedral of sport well it is but and and that's always been a, a sort of tension with sports right where it it needs people to actually give it some fun I mean the the the, the bit that you just described with mm-hmm. the, the the Stephen Fleming audio like it cries out for that because otherwise, like if you leave sports people and organisations their own devices, they'll make the most boring content in the world. And and yet the best New Zealand sports stuff is, is you know, whether it's Sports Cafe or Crowd Go, Goes Wild or um, the ACC more, more yes, latterly, yeah. has, has had a huge sense of humour about it and has loved it despite that rather than yeah. because of it. And so really they, that should have been something that, 
you know, you should have been someone that uh, Radio Sport targeted from a, from a long way out. But I mean, it it must have been amazing in some respects after feeling yourself drifting away to have arrived oh, at that. That I cried. I, I cried on the way home. I cried on the way to the studio the first time because it just felt like, oh, I'm getting another shot, you know, and it felt like I was heading towards a really important station to go and work at. And that. When was this? This was the first time the first time coming into Radio Sports. So you're driving in the morning, the Sky Tower's here, I'm driving in from Tiaratu, it's first thing in the morning, and it just felt important and like, phew, I'm getting this other shot. And it just struck me strange on things. Like I just felt that there was just so much weird reverence for what, Radio Sport had been 15 years ago and that was always spoken about as oh that'll be great hey let's do this let's you know what'll happen by oh it's great if the All Blacks lose because on Monday everyone will be all ripped up and they'll be trying to phone in on Monday and it's like and there was me and Mark who I worked with and the two of us were like no they've already done it on Twitter what are you talking about like so we felt very different thinkers I guess at that time but we weren't the same as the other staff because they'd all come up through those days and because they would have remembered that you know I used to you know yeah when Murray Deaker would come on yep. with that sermon from the mountain yep. and it was electrifying radio because you've you might have you 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 watched the test, but you didn't know how to think about it until Murray explained. Yeah, until Murray explained. Yeah, and or then Brendan it was Telfer. all on. Yeah, yeah. well, Brendan Telfer, Graham Hill was was extraordinary. I mean, that who was such brilliant talent, and and he had that weird sensibility. Yeah, he did too, and I loved Graham. Like like to me, you, you, it'll be no surprise to you. Now. He's one of my all time greats. Like to me, he's a Mount Rushmore New Zealand broadcaster. He's Agreed. amazing, and. I remember that I worked, uh, when I worked at Live Sport, the other station, we had this young uh, woman that came out of broadcasting school and, you know, you spot them straight away and you're going, oh, bigger things are happening for you. You're just here temporarily, you know, have a good time. And she said, right, I'm going to learn about sport. And she comes in on the Monday and she goes, right, so I watched rugby and I watched rugby league. And she says, it's funny, the rugby commentators all sit around like old old men judging a driving test, like everything's wrong. And she goes, and then I watched the rugby league and they're like the most easily amazed adult men on the planet. (laughs) And I thought, but there's something good about that. And I think people were drawn across to the fun in that because it should be fun. Like it is. Like the reason you go to those events, like like I love my movies, I love that, but I've never actually jumped up out of my seat to do a thing like I have at a sports event and, and with so many other people as well. And to me, that's the drug. Like that's the fun. That's that shared community experience of, yes, you know, is a, is a wonderful thing and the tension that you have on and off. So I thought that the fun would be more a, a part of it. And hey, this is at Radio Sport. Yeah, Radio Sport. And then I remember we went into a meeting towards the and I kind of felt like um, – I kind of felt like it was targeted at me and another staff member to go, hey, this is how we do things here. And it was about, here's your listener, lives on the West Coast, watches every ball of a test match, like, hangs on it. When he can't watch it, he listens to it on, on you know, on the radio or what have you. And in my head I'm thinking, no one does that apart from people that work here. Like, <laughs> people love it and people care about it and people will check in, but they're not watching every ball. Like, who, who's who's the person that can afford this lifestyle? That's incredible. You know, and we don't talk about American sport and we don't talk about this. And the one thing I didn't get was, oh, we don't like the hype of American sport, but, oh, how great's that atmosphere when they sing You'll Never Walk Alone at Liverpool? I'm like, how is that any different? <laughs> it's no different. It's hype. It's fun. It's excitement. It's a shared experience they're looking forward to. So, anyway, this, this carries on and, and, you know, then we lose the rights to the cricket. 
And there just seemed to be little things where you thought, hmm, why would they let that happen? This doesn't seem right. And then COVID starts and we we have a meeting um, with the bosses and they say to us on the Friday, don't worry about things. Look, if if things go bad, because we're not sure what will happen here, we'll just flick it to ZB and you guys from The Breakfast Show, you can come in and do overnights so they're getting paid. So do you mind doing that? And I was like, no, it's fine. We'll do that. And we were all okay. And so I, um, I'd i had Monday off. I'd actually had some leave coming up at that stage, so I took it. And I get a text, and it's, please be on a Zoom call. And I I had no idea what a Zoom call was because we didn't before. No. You know, we just didn't. And um, I'm like, okay, so I, you know, just, what do I do? Push this link and I get there. And then I come in and I notice there's all these boxes. And I'm like, this is weird. This is all everyone from Radio Sport. And then in comes the word, you know, uh, hello everyone. Uh, this is, you know, whatever the name was, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm here with the CEO uh, and the head of HR. And so, and as soon as I heard CEO and head of HR, because I've been let go from jobs before, <laughs> as you do, I just leant back and went, oh shit, because I knew what was coming. And they just basically got rid of us all there on on, on the Zoom call. And the, the bit that really got me was they didn't turn their cameras on. Like, like I'd, I'd been, when we got told at Channel Z, hey, you guys are too old now and we want something different, it hurts. It really hurts. But at the same time, someone else had been told that before I got that job. So I know that that's how it works, right? Yeah. But Brent, Brent Impey, who was, you know, he looked us in the eye and told us and, you know, across the desk. And it's hard for Brent because Brent's known me as this cheeky 20-year-old that showed up at a radio awards once and went, hey, man, how are you? And sat down to him and yabbered away. So he got rid of me that way. And then they asked us, hey, do you want to come back and do the show for a couple of weeks with the new host just to introduce him to the audience? And I drew the line there. I went, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm being good about it now. And actually, um, I got our boss at the time, you know, you have to write down your conditions for going. So I said, okay, well, I want my payout in cash and I want it in $20 notes that are not sequential. (laughs) And I want them in a briefcase. And I want you, Shusty, uh, Sandra Shusterman, I said, we want you to deliver them to us. So what we did... Was <laughs> we watched him go into this to the National Bank and he came out and then we phoned his phone and we said go to Mount Eden and then hung up. So he drives up Mount Eden and then we just basically sent him on this goose chase around and eventually he met us down at um we, we went to Kelly Tarleton's like come to Kelly Tarleton's and his name was on the door and then we hid in the tunnel and then as he's going around the conveyor belt we could see him coming and then we were in this real dark bit and then we jumped out from behind and went leave the briefcases <laughs> and took it and that's how we got our pay because I thought to myself we'd had a really fun time. And, you know, no hard feelings. It's just we're just not suitable anymore. Why not end that way? You know, that was that's kind of fun. Just, that's surely the best <laughs> way to take a redundancy. Well, and, what are you going to do? In broadcast you history. Know, of, of course, when I got home that day, I was gutted. I was absolutely gutted. And I was destroyed and I was embarrassed because you feel like, man, I've let the so I feel like down. a verdict on you as yeah, well. You yeah, know. you do. And and there's something weird about like when It's hard when anyone loses a job. But it, when you've got a job that's got a public profile, sometimes that, I don't, I don't know, maybe it's, it's not the same. But it just feels really publicly embarrassing. Um, and so I thought, well, let's do that for a bit of fun. But then you zoom it forward to Radio Sport. And the thing was, they said, oh, we just got the uh, cameras turned off because it makes the internet flow easier. Um, and then that was it. And then I just remember being left sitting bobbing like a cork in the ocean, thinking, what am I going to do? Like, Especially because, I, I mean, at that time, it felt like the whole media particularly was was caving in. So yeah. you lose your job there. Where's the next yeah. one coming it, from? What was really nice was, though, all of the Radio Sport guys – 
ended up in this whole, look, let's just try and help each other and let's support each other through this, which was a really nice thing, which I don't think people would look at and think, oh, the blokey blokey of radio sport. Now we had Zoom calls and it was like, hey, doing, man, you okay? And this, oh, I've got a, an interview at something. And then, oh, that's cool. And one of them was like, well, I'm going to go to teacher's college. And so it was nice seeing that sort of carry on. And then there were the bit where a couple of them had, sorry, I've got survivor guilt because I've still got a job and I feel terrible for you. And it's like, don't feel terrible. None of this is you. You know, we can feel gutted for this. And, and you know, we had an idea, Mark and I, to try and do a podcast series. And the thing was, we'd actually thought of it after that meeting I told you about before with the what the listener was. And we thought, no, this is weird. we're not right for this. And we'd come up with this great, Mark, Mark Peart, I should say, when I say we, it was really Mark. He came up with a, let's do these broadcasts from Eden Park. We went to Eden Park. The Eden Park guy gave us a box to do it in, and this is going to be all good. So we were going to be the only ones doing this. And then what do broadcasters do when they're fired? They all want to do a podcast because everyone needs to hear what they have to say. <laughs> and then we just got flooded with, with all these sports podcasts. It was like, no, at the time. So that was just me bouncing around. And then... I asked my friend Willie McAllister, who worked at Radio New Zealand, like, is there any hope of anything? And he said, well, you can ask uh, Richard Sutherland if there's any news reading. And I remember thinking, well, I'm not going to get news reading because I sound like this. <laughs> you know, and I don't. And then a guy, Jeremy Parkinson, who I knew from old radio days, um, used to play on the company cricket team together, he said, hey, um, I do this show called First Up. I'm the, I'm the you know, producer of it. And um, we've got this host in Dara, and she needs a sports Juno. Do you want to do like a sports bit? And I went, okay, cool. And he goes, right, so we'll ring you at 20 past five. And I'm like, oh, well, I'll be making dinner. Um, <laughs> and then he goes, no, nah, in the morning. And I'm like, okay. And But then I knew that when I came, I had to bring something different rather than just reading out a box score. So I thought, right, I'm going to try and talk about it in a different way. Or just, I, I didn't purposely think in a different way. I thought, I'm going to talk about it in the way that I would like to. That's 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 probably what I should say. It wasn't trying hard going, what's the crazy way I can talk about it? And again, that's the license that you get by being off peak, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. And so, and Indira was, was you know, like I'd just feed through, these are the three topics I want to talk about. And then I realised after a while, actually, I can just soapbox this. This is great. So so off I went and I realised the way that Indira tried to wrap you up when you were going over time. So I'd be really naughty and try and talk more without a break in the sentence. Um, yeah, and, and it was good fun. And I got to that. So that just kept at least something coming in and just kept my brain going because otherwise I think I just would have sat there sad uh, wondering what the heck I was going to do. Like I looked at buying a courier van and that was so expensive to, to buy, you know, and, and how to do those sorts of runs. Um, I had a look at teaching. I had a look at another job for the Ministry of Education because my other big thing is I, I'm very, very into education at the moment. My, my sister is a area manager for MOE. My mum was a headmaster the second school board that I've been on at the moment at Hobsonville Point, and I like what's happening and the way that they're teaching and the way they're doing things. So I like that. And I thought, well, maybe that might be where I want to go. And then I was right place, right time again, where Indira goes to breakfast because John Campbell goes, I want you. So she goes and jumps in front of the camera there and does a great gig. And they had no one to host it. So I thought... Why not? I'll Why just, not me? I'll chuck my name in. So, so I, I entered, I put my CV in and typed it in and, and chucked it in. And then uh, next thing, Pip Keen, who's the boss, rings me and says, can I have a yarn to you about this? And it was pretty cool So she, because I'd known Pip as a bit of a, like, that's a name. That's mm. like having Lorne Michaels come and speak to you. You know, it's like, oh, wow, wow, Pip Keen, okay. And because I knew that she was this young Tyro who arrived that Paul Holmes went, that one. <laughs> you know, he, you can spot them as well, like her and then with, with John Campbell and what have you. And so she came out to talk to me and, and we spoke about things and I think – 
I was probably at a different stage of life where rather than just taking a job, I thought, no, but how I've got to make sure I'm right for this because, um, and I said to her, look, I'd like to, but I don't know if I sound right for Radio New Zealand because I I don't sound like proper enough because to me, Radio New Zealand sounded very nice. But I think that that is why your first app works so well because it doesn't feel like the rest of of RNZ or actually any of the other super early shows. I, yeah. You know, I'm showing a bit of my lifestyle here that I, I, I hear the show and, I, and I've, I've heard most of the, yeah. the early morning radio. But what I think that you've done so well with it and why I wanted to have you on was is that there is hard news on here. Like you're interviewing yeah. the finance minister, interviewing the deputy leader of the opposition People every, being blown every up week. In Ukraine. Yeah. 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 And it's, and, and, you know, like you're absolutely unafraid of uh, tackling big news and, and because you've got a slightly relaxed manner, sometimes I think you get more out of them than in a more adversarial format. But you also tell us about the frog. Yeah. <laughs> the frogs yeah, yeah. in your yard. And I think that somehow those things, which don't really make sense, you know, if you're writing out the pitch, you'd be like, this, this is kind of a mess. It actually, it, it really sort of suits that sort of uh, the, the, the time and the, the mood where you f- you always feel like you're sort of alone with yeah. with that as 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 a radio listener and and I think it, it really fits so yeah t- tell me about um, how you've managed to make those sort of two streams uh, work and and the, the relationship with the audience because it feels like you know just as there is a an RNZ you know you're, you're talking about an RNZ host archetype then you don't feel like you're at there's also like mm-hmm. a, an RNZ listener archetype that's probably not. A million miles away from their from their version of the West Coast uh, radio sport person, and you just seem to have a different relationship with your people. Well, I um, J- Pip said to me at that day when I said I don't know if I sound right, and she said, "No, you sound like New Zealand, and this is called Radio New Zealand, and you, you will be fine. Just do your thing." And so when I first got there, like I've got Jeremy Parkinson as our EP in the morning, and I've known Jez for a really long time, so that felt comfortable to meet someone through the window there. Katrina Batten is, um, you know, newsreader. She's wonderful with diction, wonderful with all that. But she's she's our panel operator, so she's my producer this way. And what's quite nice is we're of a similar vintage, the three of us, and they managed to get me in and teach me the way to do things. So Katrina was really good at going, no, that would do it this way and do this. And she realised early on that I don't mind being corrected. And I think a lot of people can take that super personally. Like, I'd just rather get it right. So I don't, I don't mind, you know, if I've stuffed this up. And sometimes I'll do something and I'll, I don't know, mispronounce something. I'll, let's just say I go October or whatever. And in my ear I get October, you know, just bang. <laughs> it just yeah. comes in and, and very good with place names in Europe and things like that. And I'm fine with that. And when one thing I realised early on was like, man, the RNZ audience love to correct you on stuff. They, they really do, you know, like, oh, how are they going to take me? And at first, as always, when you appear, people hate you for the first couple of weeks because you're not what they were used to and, and you're different to their routine. So I, I've what I've done throughout my career very early on it was some advice I was given way back in that very first radio station day by my friend David Elliott who later on went to fly planes and that in the Air Force but he said look don't do all your tricks on the first day let them get to know you first and then do that because you can't be the person that shows up at the party all wacky because people instantly think that guy's a dick you know like like come in, come in and, and, and do a bit of this and just work your way in so I, I got in at first I thought and, and Pip had a really cool way of welcoming me in. So she she had me sit there for two weeks to watch Indira do the show from what does Indira do when she arrives? 
How does she sort that out? What does she do when she's in there? Watch how the show goes together. And then there was uh, another presenter, Anna Thomas, and she said, I want you to watch Anna as well because I don't want you to go in and just copy what Indira does. She said, you need to learn the process and then you'll make it your own. And in my head, like, it was just mind-blowing. I thought, what an amazing level of understanding your front person and understanding how to get them into doing what they're doing. The other part was uh, the resourcing that, that Radio New Zealand puts into things. And I think that what had happened was is that 28 years of doing commercial radio, you're never doing something for the audience. It's always for the sales department. It, it always is. And and that's it's a horrible realisation to make, but it's true because, I mean, you've got to secure the bag. You've got to pay the electricity, pay everyone pay the other breakfast announcers Maserati, whatever it is, you know, like you've, you've got to secure all, all that stuff as it comes in. So they just slowly let me develop. So really it started out, we had, um, it's Glenn, Glenn Forsyth, the fruit guy. So Glenn is our, our, our fruit fruit and veggies guy, the Minister of Fruit and Veg, and he's on Monday and Friday, and Jeremy would just go, yeah, call, you know, call him the Minister of Fruit and Veg because that's what Indira had called him. So that instantly let me go, oh, okay, you can be slightly here. So I, I was just taking my time to measure it and go. And then... We decided that Glenn on Friday, because the thing I love about him is he cares so much, and I think people that care too much are the best guests for anything, and he would do Friday, and I went, hey, why don't we have him do a fruit of the week? So we had, Glenn, what's your fruit of the week? And he said, oh, it's whatever it was, you know, apples. And I remember thinking, something's sort of missing here. And then Katrina and I workshop stuff, and by this stage, Katrina's starting to understand me more, because there's, she want to explain to people, there's a real key to having the person that's running your studio, the massive amount of trust that you need in each other to sound comfortable to get there. But I'm, you know, you know, and then she goes, oh, so let's let's play something. So I found this, ta-da, kind of fanfare, which was about the most low-key one in the world. But it works. And that's not a very RNZ thing it either. It just works. It's well, see, of, I didn't know. And But you're helping to loosen up a station that kind of needs to, you know? like yeah. Like I think that the... You think about Morning Report's been running continuously for you know probably the end of fifty years. For most yeah. of that time, it's yeah. had Jeff Robinson as a host. Like the the heritage can be oppressive if it's not allowed to evolve and grow. And that's where I think one of the roles that First Up has is because it's sort of you know it's a new show, newest show by uh, RNZ standards, and yeah. it's not under the bright lights. And you, as your with your personality and your background. Uh, you know, you've got a license to play with it a bit, yeah. which I think is what the whole because, of the institution needs. Because they trust me. Like, like they know now. They that the, Our journalists know, like Matt and, and Ella and Ellie, when they're out doing stories and they're doing these, uh, the, they know that I'm not going to ruin it for them and I'm not going to ruin their hard work for it. But, for example, when it's um, chats with, um, you know, deputy leaders of political parties or something like that, they'll send me notes beforehand that I can go and study and links to things and that. So I feel really prepared and I don't feel like I can fail. And there's something about giving your giving your front person that amount of confidence. Um, I think because I'd always in my, in my career, I hadn't really been a confident lead singer, but I'd been a confident sort of backup singer, I felt. And even in the Ice TV days, I felt safety in the other two. And whenever we'd walk anywhere, they were really good at being famous and I wasn't. So I they were tall and beautiful. So I used to, on purpose, walk about four or five metres behind them everywhere because I knew that as people turned to look at Petra and John, that was just cutting that angle of vision where I wouldn't be there, you know, because I felt I felt more comfortable doing that, and that's probably a family trait more than anything um, with, with us. But it it just that just wasn't the level that I was at. So I do like radios that are not being looked at so much. But to have, you know, now and now it's fun, and I'll go to Katrina something like 
or Katrina and Jeremy, we have our little chats in the morning out in the office and I've got better now at just plucking little bits out and throwing those into bits of prep, like stuff that I found interesting beforehand to get in and change and, and do these things. And the correspondents get me now. They understand me now. So we've got fun ones in Japan and Britain and, and what have you. Um, and then even the the bit towards the end of the show, so about quarter two, that's the classic radio crossover. And that's the first bit where you go and you talk to like um, Susie Ferguson or Corin Dan or, you know, Kim Hill or whoever is is, is doing the show. And I love those chats. Like it's quite fun, and and I I I like I, I like my chats with Susie. They're great. I mean, my my granddad came to New Zealand on a boat from Aberdeen, so I've always had a thing about Scottish people. And I love the accent. It's just it feels so comforting and warm, you know. And she can understand when I just chuck in a thing about iron brew or you know black pudding or anything. She gets where I'm at, you know. Um, so it's it's nice to be able to do that. But I think to myself, well, why? I can talk to her like that, can't I? It's still my show now in these hours, and I know that she doesn't do things differently. But where it felt like, oh, I'm okay, was actually when Kim Hill was was filling in, and she comes in and we're talking, and and it's funny when when Kim Hill's there, everyone sits up a little straighter, you know. I'm like, oh, okay, so this is, and I, I knew of Kim Hill, and I was like, wow, so she's again, you know, Mount Rushmore, and. Um, she starts talking to – she started the ad lib. She starts talking about the coffee machine in Wellington and how it was broken and how stupid this was and it was terrible. And and the next day we come back and I go, oh, how's the coffee machine? Well, and then she does this great little piece about it and it was so funny. And so I just said, did you give it a withering stare? You know, <laughs> and she laughed and, and so that was kind of fun. So that's – I think that's when I felt like, oh, okay, I, I belong here and this is good. So what's nice is um, my – my two in the morning that are there with me, they let me try things. And Katrina is very good at giving me the face of the, nah, I didn't really work. <laughs> you know, and, and Jeremy is good as well because Jeremy writes, you know, he'll write little little things. He always tries to Ron Jeremy me. You know, he'll, he'll put like, just just put little bits in there just to make sure that I've I've, I've done my stuff and I've done my pre-reading and what have you. But he likes to challenge me every now and then with, we'll do a, you know, how much your New, your New Zealand dollar is worth. And to me, reading that same top line of script every day, it just bores the heck out of me. So my mouth just finds a different way to say it. But he'll throw in the currencies that I haven't seen before that he chucks in about five minutes beforehand. And I know he's just sitting in the studio going, <laughs> you know, but again, that's nice. Like it's a really good thing, I think, because I've always thought these jobs that we do, like we don't work in abattoirs, we don't work on roads, we aren't doing really tough things. Like we're not doing um, daycare. Imagine being a daycare teacher. My goodness, you know, like we we don't we're not dealing with mental health people or patients. And that our job is fun. So if it, if I leave and we get into the car and I feel like yeah we had fun today, to me that's. I know it might sound cheesy and it might sound Pollyanna or whatever, but that's the honest truth. Like I'm like yeah. And that's why I'm here and that's why we do it. So hopefully if I did, the audience did too. And they seem to be buying into it. Like we get so many, we've got really funny listeners and they like to send back feedback questions and they like to send back funny things. And sometimes you'll throw out a, a you know, say you send, your, you know, send in your thoughts on this, no one sends their whakaro in at all, you know, and you're like, oh, okay. And then one you'll go and you don't think it's going to go anything, just goes huge. I mean, like we did one about coffee the other week, the price of coffee, because Pam talked about Pam Corkery. 
about how it's going to be seven bucks in Brisbane for a flat white soon. And I was talking about, you know, do you still actually like your coffees you made at home or whatever? And then we had this great reply from a guy who was really long. And in the end, Jeremy went, shall we just ring him after the show and record him? And he's Joe. He's one of our regular listeners. And he's the head roaster at Havana Coffee. So we got this great interview with him about the process of it and why it costs more of this. And then ended up going on a tangent, as I tend to, about him being in Tanner in Vanuatu, learning how to roast coffee, you know, teaching people how to roast coffee up there and stuff. But that's that audience feedback that makes me feel like, yes, we're, we're doing a good thing because it seems like people like it. And when you say I sound different than the others, it's like, yeah, I do because I have to, because I, I can't do what they do. Like, I can't be the sort of interviewer like Lisa Rowan is. I can't be all Susie or, or Corin. I don't have that about me. I, I don't have that way like Catherine does as well. I, I can't do that. But I still feel like I can chat to people and I can get information out of people that is just my way of getting it, you know, and, and it is to have people feel comfortable so that we can both talk and they feel comfortable about saying things. And I might not harangue people on stuff, but sometimes you do the bit where you ask the question and then you just sit back because you know that they're, it's like, okay, cool, you're saying this. <laughs> you're saying this is this is being recorded and this sits here forever, so fine, you you go for it, you know? And I, I guess that's the philosophy of it, is, is like I was really worried about if I would fit in. I was really worried if I was doing well by RNZ. Um, but I, I feel like, a, like I think I feel like I'm okay. Like we just put together our radio awards entry and I've been a judge on those for years and stuff. And I listened to our 10 minutes of the show and what was cool was I got to the end of 10 minutes and I was like, oh, is there more? And I thought, oh, how neat. And it was everyone's work was in there and there was the pride that was in it and the quality that was in it. And that felt really cool. You know, that's like, okay, I think this is good. And I was saying to Katrina, look, even if we don't win an award, because it's up to the judges, right? I said, but that feels like I've gone somewhere and done a really good audition and that's the best I can do. And then they just decide if you're suitable. And if we're suitable to be the show that they think is what talk shows sound like now, then that's good. And if not, that's fine because we're really happy with what we do. You heard that 10 minutes. It's, well, she put it together. It's awesome. So we'll just keep doing what we do. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that uh, you're, you're doing such a fantastic and really just quite specific and different uh, job. And you can hear the level of trust that exists between the the on and off air personnel and the audience. Yeah. And yeah, so keep keep doing it. Um, thank you so much for coming thank up. Thank you. On the phone. And congratulations too, because I remember when you went out and and did spin off and 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 went to this, and it was like, oh, this is interesting. This Duncan Grieve guy is having a go at this. This is uh, gee, that's that's ballsy. I mean, we were having a chat about it at the time, and now walking, you got offices and you know and all that stuff. I mean, it's um, it, it's good, and I think people need like like people need that level of bravery to jump out and and do things because. You, you do need to evolve and you do need to change things. And you saw an evolution where you went, yep, using information, but I could do it a little different as well, you know. And and so it's been great to watch that. And, you know, you know, you, you read through it and you listen, you know, watch your footage that you have and stuff now is great. So, you know, congratulations to you, man. It's, it's pretty cool. I really appreciate that, Nathan. Thanks so much for coming up. Cheers. Thank you. The Fold is brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network together with Vodafone. It was hosted by Duncan Grieve, produced by T.I. Hair Butler, with production management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee. To find out how Vodafone can help you reach your personal and business potential, visit vodafone.co.nz.
podcast manager at the spin-off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.